Welcome to Jonah 1133, Part 1. And let's happen in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that you're in control of all things. We pray that you would um, just uh, speak through me. You can speak through a rock, Lord. And I just pray you just speak through me and that you would uh, use this time to bring you much glory. And what we know not teach us and what we have not give us, Lord, and what we are not make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so we are back to um, to um, the first of Jonah. So I'm excited about that, and we're going to see. Uh, we're going to read it. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. (laughs) For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That was 1 John 5, 1 through 4. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Because why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's Ephesians five fifteen through 17. And therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As, dear, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. And if we were um, in class, we would be singing trust and obey. And there's a, a verse in that that goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The beauty of teaching a small book of the Bible is that we do have the time to read the section, of which I was thinking we were starting it to begin with, but I wanted to read these other scriptures to you. Um, and so before we start, we're going to read Jonah 1, 1 through 3. It's short. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amate. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord as if you can. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now, the Bible is comprised of 66 different books. It tells only one story, and God continually communicates that message to us, even though we don't always listen very attentively. It is the message of His love, His grace, and His mercy. To be sure, God loves us, and He is long-suffering towards us. Not only that, he always has our best interest at heart. I'm reminded of God's words that Moses penned back in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there 
with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's Exodus 34, again, 5 through 7. And again, in Exodus 20, 5 through 6, is written, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 25 through 6. The book of Jonah is not so much a message about a great fish, which is mentioned only four times, or a great city, which was named nine times, or even a disobedient prophet, which is mentioned 18 times, as it is about God. In all of Scripture, God is mentioned in, in all of Scripture. Is. God is mentioned 38 times in these four short chapters. And if you eliminated him from the book, the story wouldn't make sense. The book of Jonah is both about the will of God and how we respond to it. And also about the love of God and how we share it with others. More than likely, Jonah was a popular man in Israel because of his prediction having been fulfilled that the nation, Israel, would regain her lost territory from her enemies. In 2 Kings 14.25, as we said last week, everybody enjoys hearing good news, right? Also, as stated last week, those were the days of peace and prosperity for Israel, which sadly were accompanied by their moral decay, like America, and spiritual idolatry. Most people can handle little better than they can handle much. They were in their autumn days, just before the terrible winter days of God's judgment. To be sure, God is often slow in judging, but make no mistake about it, He does judge. He disciplines us to reel us back in to Him and away from our sins, which are our downfall. Discipline also produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 tells us, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you like sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more? 
Should we should submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. <laughs> no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Who among us does not want a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives? It was during this time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah with the marching orders to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against its wickedness. The Old Testament uses this Hebrew expression, Dabar Yahweh, and it's the word of the Lord about 438 times, 161 occurring in the prophetic books. It was the Lord's major way of revealing his will to his people. Yet when Jonah hears the word of the Lord, the message that God intended for him to give to Nineveh, it obviously didn't settle well. It didn't suit his fancy. And he hightails it for Joppa. Just a bit of history before we proceed, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire and at various times during its history, including the time of Jonah's visit in the 8th century B.C. Within a few decades, Assyria became dominant in the land of Palestine. Israel was carried into exile in 772 to 721 B.C., and Judah was nearly conquered in 701 B.C. This domination proved to be the peak of the Assyrian power. By 612 B.C., the great city of Nineveh was in ruins, and by 609 B.C., the Assyrian Empire had vanished forever. Both Nahum and Zephaniah in uh, 3, 5 through 7 in Nahum and Zephaniah 2, 13 prophesied this final destruction of Nineveh. As I said earlier, God may be slow in judging, but he does judge. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with us, with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 8-9 We serve a merciful, loving, and long-suffering God, but I digress. Jonah did not like what the Lord had asked him to do, so he flees. This popular prophet of Israel was not into warning Israel's greatest enemy against its impending doom. Jonah had a wrong attitude regarding the will of God, yet obeying God's will was as important to God's servant as it was to the people. He was to minister to, perhaps even more so, Pitifully, in the seeking to run away, Jonah was seeking to run from God's very best for his life. Ding, ding, ding. This is a lesson for us all as well. We must learn to embrace with joy what he allows. And I also like to add, for our pleasure, even if the task seems hard to us, and more often 
than not, it is. We are on display to the world, if you claim faith, to demonstrate Jesus, whose life was anything but easy. And we are to do this through his power and for his glory. Flesh can't do it. God never owns what mere flesh can do. Also, obedience is for us. It is God's best for our lives. And by the way, what, whatever our pea brains can conjure up as the best way for our lives, if it is not God's way, it's like being in the sandbox in lieu of going to the seashore at best. Also, the prophet was God's primary means of divulging his will, the truth of God to others. For the prophet not to do it then purposely prevented others from obeying as they would remain ignorant to the truth. It is in obeying the will of God that we find our spiritual nourishment. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work in John 4, 34. Obeying is also for our enlightenment. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. John seven sixteen through 18. Remember, too, in obeying the will of God, we are enabled through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He never gives us the task without the power. There's always grace sufficient to meet each need, and you can count on it. Scripture says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 20-21. To Jesus, the will of God was the food that satisfied him. To Jonah, the will of God was the medicine that choked him. However, when God's word commands us to do anything, we must listen and obey, albeit so hard. Disobedience is not an option. Obedience gets a bad rap, does it not? I'm not going to take a bit of time and delve deeper with you on the precious gift of the way of obedience. I am. To make it a bit clearer, I have brought a wrap package, and I don't have one here for you, but in my class to consider. If we look at the way of obedience as a gift from God wrapped beautifully with the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than looking at it as servile or lackluster or boring or scary or not profitable or whatever you want to, we will keep from continually falling back into wallowing in the world and holding on to its pathetic tenets. God has so much more for us than that. I want you all to know at the core what a gift from God is the way of obedience. He does not leave his children wondering about his ways. He is pristinely clear and desires for us to have the blessed 
benefit of walking in it. It remains his desire for us to grow up in him, leaving our childlike ways behind, getting rid of, of the milk and off of the milk and onto solid food, so to speak. This will require our vigilant obedience. Paul tells his beloved Timothy in Timothy 1, 18 through 19, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. And again in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Or 6 through 8. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the, both the present life and the life to come. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And that's why I always say, take it back to your word before it becomes a core value. And lastly, in 1 Timothy 4, 16, it says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In 1 Timothy 4, 16. All throughout scripture, from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the churches mentioned in Revelation, God calls his people to obedience. This is not to be a killjoy, to say the least. It is sin that kills joy, not obedience. Remember, it was sin that removed our original parents from the blessings that abounded in the garden. It was sin that kept the Israelites from the land of plenty and the land that was promised and remained wandering in the desert. And it was sin that prevents us from experiencing the abundant life God has for us in the here and the now. Instead, obedience is always, always for our best and the best for those who come behind us, who examine our lives and our faith. Our actions, unless repented of, can be generational. We don't want to pass down our stinking bents to those we love. Rather, we are to do the hard work of dealing with them ourselves. This is always for our good. It matters greatly how we live our lives. We do not live as unto ourselves alone. The tentacles of sin and disobedience are so far-reaching, and they affect many in our spheres and further generations. I know many of you can say amen to that, as everyone has seen this in their own lives and in the lives of other families. God has provided a way for us to take, and he has promised us to make that way clear, just as he did for the Israelites, even though it is hard. Moses tells us in Exodus 13, 21 through 22, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Exodus 13, 21-22. And again in Deuteronomy 10, 12-13. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord 
um, your God asks of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with your, your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. In answer to Thomas's question of how can we know the way, Jesus responds. Jesus answered to him, he says, I am, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John 14, 6. Deep in your heart, it is not guidance you want so much as a God, John White says. We are to follow Jesus, and he has given us his power and his word to accomplish this so great an endeavor. We are not left as orphans. He has not left us to do this great work on our own. <laughs> he tells us, if you love me, you will obey me. You will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 15 through 18. Next, Jesus adds, whoever has my commands, whoever does, and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Jesus is not just our Savior and Lord. He is our model, John Thompson said. If you were to ask me point blank, what does it mean to you to live spiritually? I would have to reply, living with Jesus at the center. When I look back over the last 30 years of my life, I can say that for me, the person of Jesus has come to be more and more important. Specifically, this means that what matters increasingly is getting to know Jesus and living in solidarity with him, Henry Nowen writes. In regard to obedience, there is no need to readdress what God has already made pristinely clear in Scripture. We are held accountable for all of that, i.e. stealing, lying, cheating, adultery, murder, etc., etc., etc. It is vastly important that we know and apply the Word of God. Ignorance to it is no excuse. We rob ourselves, we rob our families when we neglect its truths. We miss so much when we don't know his commands to obey or his promises to claim. God is clear on many issues, and through them we can be better discerners of his heart and also know where God stands on many issues. We are to examine Jesus' life. He came to earth to live a perfect life for us to follow, fleshing out all the commands of the law perfectly, something that none of us can do. Apart from Christ, we all stand before the throne of God, woefully wanting. Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned 
every single one of us, and fall short of the glory of God. Again, Romans 3.23. And Isaiah echoes the same message in Isaiah 53.6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.6. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for my sin and for yours. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6 through 9, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And again, Romans 5, 6 through 9. <clears throat> and, in Rome, and in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? Really? Jesus came to demonstrate to us the way we should walk. Indeed, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one, in spirit, in purpose, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen to that, right? I mean, he empties himself out and God elevates and lifts. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We are, to, we are called to the highest standards in claiming to be children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So how is our family resemblance fleshing out in our day, today, ordinary lives? Are we faithful? Hopefully our answer is to be obediently walking in his way through the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory. Not perfect, mind you, but seeking to be blameless, even 
in the very mundane things of ordinary days, which most of life is. Isn't that right? As I've mentioned probably a million times before, and I sometimes can be prone to exaggeration, even in doubt or even knowingly choosing the wrong way of the world, it behooves us to follow out an action to, in our minds, to completion and see if we are willing to embrace the fruit of the consequences that the action will most assuredly bring forth. We will reap what we sow. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, 7 through 8, land that drinks in the rain often, falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Hebrews 6, 7-8 There are blessings in obedience, always, always, always. And just as certain, there are consequences following sin. Because the Lord does not want us to languish there. It is not for our good, to say the least. His Father's heart loves and longs for that us too much for that. He is fully aware that there is always going to be a death to something when it comes to sin, because every sin carries with it a death sentence. Death to relationship, death to what love, death to trust, death to whatever. We need a made-up mindset before temptation knocks at our door. I think of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 If the Apostle Paul thought it worthwhile to be vigilant in this, how much more so should we be? While the repentant believer is always forgiven, that does not erase the surety of the consequences that will follow. As stated earlier, most of the time people do not realize how far-reaching the tentacles of their sin can go. We get to choose to sin, but God chooses the consequences. Keep your accounts short with the Lord. Repent quickly, meaning turn. As the longer we allow it to proceed, the worst it gets. Sin never remains on the same level. Just examine King David's life. Hopefully many will realize the consequences are not worth that bite of the apple. Run to him and relish in his abundant grace and his mercy, which ever flows freely from his throne. He never turns a repentant sinner away. Indeed, he runs after them. Praise him. He never despises a broken and contrite heart. King David, who also had much to repent of, tells us in Psalms 51, 16 through 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for um, your word. I thank you that you tell us the way and that indeed you empower us to walk in it. Help us to be faithful to your call, Lord. We ask this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.